Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on May 6, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with David Houle, a futurist, thinker, and keynote speaker. He has keynoted numerous conferences and given countless presentations across the globe. He is regularly invited to speak at corporate management retreats. David is often called the CEO's futurist, having spoken to or advised 4,000-plus CEOs and business owners over the course of the past decade. He spent more than 20 years in media and entertainment, working at NBC and CBS, and was part of the senior executive team that launched MTV, Nickelodeon, VH1, and CNN Headline News. David's specialty is the future. His first book, The Shift Age, was published in 2007, after he had anticipated and acted upon a number of forward-thinking business ideas and practices that were, at first, ridiculed and resisted, but are now considered self-evident, such as the concept of aligning advertisers with high-quality niche network programming models. David embraces an insightful comment by the German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, quote, In the revelation of any truth, there are three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is resisted. In the third, it is considered self-evident. David has lived, and continues to live, all three of those stages. He continues to publish books, articles, newsletters, and maintains a very active blog, all of which speak to our shift into a different type of future. You can find his main website at davidhull.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-H-O-U-L-E, davidhull.com. Oh, and did I mention that David has a number of awards? He won two Emmys as co-executive producer for a nationally syndicated children's program, Energy Express. He also won the prestigious George Foster Peabody Award and the Heartland Award for Hank Aaron, Chasing the Dream, and David was nominated for an Academy Award. David, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for that uh, lengthy introduction. I appreciate it. Oh, good. Well, um, so before we get started, um, I, I, I'm sure people are going to ask this question. What exactly is a futurist, and, and what incidents in your life inspired you to become a person of such futuristic insight? Well, the defini- okay, the definition of a futurist is someone who thinks, writes, and speaks about the future. And the way I think of my usefulness is that my job is to be a catalyst to get people, companies, markets, governments, to think about the future, and then to facilitate a conversation about it. So open their minds up about the future and then interact with them about their concerns or their issues or what might happen. And the way I got into it is kind of a a personal journey in the sense that um, in my 20s, I read the great futurist of the last 75 years, um, our Buckminster Fuller, Marshall McLuhan, and Alvin Toffler. And I also, in my 20s, read a lot of science fiction. And those two things kind of, you know, structured my thinking about what's next and what could be. And then I went into uh, a successful career selling television time, NBC, CBS. And, you know, to the Schopenhauer quote, um, I took a 50% pay cut in 1980 to leave the number one broadcast network at a time when cable was only in 10% of the company, country, excuse me, to go join about 25, 30 people at the time, who then we launched MTV, Nickelodeon, VH1, CNN Headline News, which is now Headline News, I think. Mm -hmm. And we did a satellite transponder deal with Turner. So, you know, I was involved in the if not the immediate launch from the, starting with about the 13th month of um, CNN. So, you know, oh, who's ever going to watch a 24-hour news channel? What do you mean video music? What do you mean a channel for kids, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I turned out to be right, and it helped my career a lot. And then in the late 90s, 97, 98, I became managing director of an Internet 1.0 startup that was one of the very first companies in the world to create online courses. What do you mean online courses? That'll never happen. So it wasn't until several years into this century that I realized that my highest value to the planet, to people, 
was to talk to them about the future because obviously I've been fairly accurate in its direction. And the Schopenhauer quote comes up because every time I did those things, you know, as I said, people could say, well, you'll come back to CBS. Don't worry. Cable's never going to work. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, what do you mean? Online courses? That'll never happen. Right. So, so I just, just, you know, I've now developed through 15 plus years of being a professional futurist. Um, you know, that, that's what I think about all the time. That's what I write about. So I, I've kind of trained myself in addition to my lifelong developed sense of directions, pattern recognitions, and trends. Uh, so I'm a futurist, and certainly at a time when the world needs one. Yeah, I think so. And and um, so let's go let's go to your books. I mean, you, 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 back in 2007, I believe you wrote a book called The Shift Age, and then in 2013 was entering the Shift Age. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, what recent trends in society that that you're referring to with the term shift are, are you saying that our society is becoming perhaps more transactional or or are we simply shifting into a different type of normal well the insight for the first book which i wrote in 2007 the shift age came when i looked back so this is 2005 so the information age basically got its name in the mid seventies, uh, before we got on this call, we talked about the third wave, which, uh, Toffler published, I think it was 1981. So, uh, and you know, there's, there were three ages up to the shift age, loosely speaking, there was the agricultural age, which has run for 10 to 12,000 years, the industrial age, roughly 300 years. And, um, the information age starting in the late sixties, early seventies. So from the vantage point of 2005, I look back at the 30 years, going back to 1975, um, and realized that during that 30-year period, during the information age, five things had happened, and a sixth was going to happen. The five things that happened was the end of the Cold War, the beginning of the global economy, analog to digital, personal computing, and the Internet. And then the sixth thing that I knew was going to happen was high-speed wireless mm-hmm. and the cloud. So I said to myself, there has to be a new age. Any two or three of these, right? The geo, geo, global geopolitics changed, global economics changed, uh, the way we process content changed, how we distribute it changed, and we all had computers. So mm-hmm. that had to change it. So then I thought, well, what are you going to be call this? And I, and I realized that it was different than the prior ages, which are basically named after the products, like industrial age, the production, mm-hmm. uh, agri- you know, the agricultural age, um, land, right? And okay. information age, technology. And so I realized that everything, almost everything, was going to be in a state of shift. So I called it the shift age. And, mm-hmm. and then... Um, uh, in 2011, I came out with a book called The New Health Age, The Future of Healthcare in America, which put me on a map for the future of healthcare. And uh, that was 2011, right? And also in 2011, my book, Shift Ed, called to Action, Transforming K-12, Education, came out. And um, so, uh, you know, the, the 2013 book, Entering the Shift Age, was my opportunity to go back and kind of more give put more flesh on the bones of the first book, The Shift Age. Mm -hmm. And now that we sit in 2020, one of the questions I've always been asked uh, was how long The Shift Age was going to last. And I said, I don't know, probably 25, 30 years. And I think The Shift Age is going to last, you know, until the late 2020s, perhaps the 2030. And um, so so that's how it came about. and, And that's why I called it The Shift Age. Okay. And so it it really is it's it's the uh, it's building on the age of information, but also now the delivery portion of information that is the uh, the ability to have high speed internet uh, internet access um, access to all kinds of um, information at, at our fingertips and but also um, I think what kind of scares people though too is is that this information. 
uh, is not just generated by professional by, by the media. It's generated by everybody, and people can start having conversations with other people on the other side of the world, and that's good and bad. The bad part of it, of course, is that you know uh, rumors get started or you know false stories get started, and they they start to take root, and people start to believe it. So. Um, I guess I guess what I'm trying to figure out here is 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 that what it is the the, the shift age where um, it's just simply having the power of all this information right at our fingertips? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, when I was in college, search meant knowing the library hours, knowing a research librarian, being able to find the three copies of the book I needed for the class and hide one of them so I could go get it. Right, so. I mean, I think the, the smart smartphone, which is a handheld computer, is one of the most transformative devices ever. I mean, several times a day, I look stuff up on Google. Oh, is that person still alive? Well, let me look it up, right? So um, I take, I, you know, we have fake news. I don't buy into that because there's always been fake news. So it's just that more people can create it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Thomas Jefferson said about advertising, it was the it was the only truth in newspapers. Um, you know, uh, we talk about well centralized authority. We all remember Ultra, Uncle Walter Cronkite, right? Uh, and you know, you know, when Cronkite came back after the Tet Offensive in '58, and he said, you know, uh, we're losing this war. LBJ turned to whoever sitting next to me and says, "I've just lost America because I lost Walter Cronkite," but. Cronkite, for anybody who's old enough to remember the Vietnam War, you know, the nightly newscast was, well, 2,375 Viet Cong were killed and 17 Americans were died, right? Were died, right? Yeah, the body and counts. Cronkite yeah. got that information from the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the war, all those stats were added up, and it would have added up to more than the population of North Vietnam. So the Pentagon was feeding Walter Cronkite false information, and he repeated it as Uncle Walter truth teller, right? So I don't buy into the, the, the news has always been less than forthright, less than honest. A hundred years ago, if you read a, if you read a William Randolph Hearst newspaper, you know, was it truth or rumor? Yeah. So, um, you know, the only really thing that's become big in the United States is because you've got a president of the United States who, you know, lies all the time. Right. And, and, and says, you know, don't believe what you read, believe what I tell you. Right. Mm -hmm. So he used the word fake news more than anybody else on the planet, only because he can't handle the truth, to quote right. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, any downside in the Internet has infinite more upside. You know, any new technology is going to disrupt the existing reality. Yeah. I mean, if, 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 if you were giving me an interview 100 years ago, and we were talking about horses and buggies. You know, yeah, you know, they're going to be gone. Right. Um, yeah. But that's not right. Right. It, 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 it's it's unstoppable. Yeah. That is unstoppable. And you were um, just to go back to something you said earlier, you're you're um, you're about to write or you're about to release another book on the uh, the 2020s, um, the most disruptive decade or what was the title of that book again? Yeah, the first, well, it's going to be a series of short books. I, okay. I believe that not many people, I've done a lot of research and asked a lot of people, and people don't really read thick nonfiction books anymore, except academics and those that are into certain topics, right? So I'm going to do a series of short books, all around 100 pages, about the 2020s. And the first book that's going to come up by the end of this month in May is the 2020s, colon, the most disruptive decade in history, mm. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, for the last two months, I've been saying, so how the first three months of the new decade treating you, right? No. I mean, I can't think of a more disruptive experience than what we're all going through around the world today. Yeah. So uh, it, it is going to be, a, a, it, there's going to be more change, disruption, transformation, and creative destruction in the 20s, 2020s, than any 30-year period in history. Yeah, and that, uh, and we talked about this earlier too. That that you you believe that the twenty twenties will be consequential for at least the next six uh, next fifty years. Um, yeah, 
Well, I mean, other than the fact that, I mean, we've, we've the first, you know, we've now come down with this virus and a lot of people, the joke now is that, um, can we uh, do a reboot of 2020? This one has a virus. But uh, even without the virus, this was going to be a very disruptive decade. And uh, could could you explore that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I, you know, I what I tend to do um, is to oversimplify things to give people aha moments. So, you know, I, I try to speak in simple terms. You know, the truth is simple. When somebody tells you it's complex, I mean, you know, understanding um, the origins of the universe and stuff. I mean, that's complex, but um, it's simple. It was a big bang, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the simple truth of the 2020s is the four overarching trends or dynamics, I should say, is that it's unquestionably um, the full throttle of the age of, in, of climate change, the beginning of the age of intelligence, the reinvention of capitalism and democracy and the beginning of a new global consciousness. And all, and so by the, so by 2030, we will have, will be, a number of us will be in that new consciousness. Democracy will have been reinvented. Capitalism out of necessity will be reinvented. Um, uh, climate change, if we humanity don't make fundamental changes by 2030, game over. Mm-hmm. And the age of intelligence, technological intelligence, which I prefer that name to artificial intelligence, is going to be merging with humanity ultimately for our next evolutionary step. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, those a lot are, of stuff, right? Those, those are pretty big trends, and I can see, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of a softer guy myself, so um, I, I tend to believe there's, there's this there's this uh, point in time they figure it'll happen uh, at very, very early part of the next decade where they believe, anyways, if things keep going the way they're going, that the uh, intelligence of some of the machines we're creating will rival that of human intelligence. And um, yeah, it, it's uh, at first it's kind of a scary thought, but on the other hand, um, it's I think you said earlier there's nothing we can do about these trends. This is what's going to happen. Right. So. So the idea is to try and be a futurist and to, you know, people sometimes say you're so apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. And if you look up the word, the, the root word of apocalypse, it comes from ancient Greek, which means, which has two definitions, the lifting of the veil or the, re- the re- revelation, meaning it, we've always used the word apocalypse like it's oh it's the end of life right. no it's the end of this type of reality mm-hmm. so the lifting of the veil to a new reality the revelation of a new reality so i don't mind being called apocalyptic because what i'm doing is i'm lifting a veil on what the new reality is going to be mm-hmm. and one of the things that people just don't get is that reality is in a constant state of change. It's not fixed, right? right. It's just not fixed. Um, the reality you and I are living in in 2020, the reality we're living in in May of 2020 is different than the reality we're living in in January of 2020, right? right? So you can't think that reality is constant. So what I try to do with my books and my talks is to open people up to show them what the future might look like. So at least they're forearmed, forewarned, and they start thinking about how they can best navigate the future. Yeah. That's a big task because um, a, a great number of people are, are naturally uh, resist change. It's, it's scary, right? Because things aren't going to be the same. So, you know, we, we go into the future, an uncertain future in a lot of people's minds. Um, and I think it's not only scary from the from the sense that things are changing, but I think a lot of people have a concern about being left behind. So I guess your words as a futurist could be uh, quite useful in the sense that um, how not to get left behind, I suppose, for the lack of a better term here, is you know, if you can anticipate some of these changes that are coming, then perhaps you can profit from it. But there's this fear factor that you have to overcome at first. And, and 
Uh, I personally believe that that fear factor is is affecting our politics these days and affecting life in general. Well, you know, the way I deal with that concept is there's only one constant in the universe, in the cosmos, and that is change. Mm -hmm. The universe is not fixed. If the universe is fixed, there'd be no time, right? Time measures change. So if the only constant and the only reality in the universe is change and you fear change and you don't want to change, um, I mean, it's a pretty obvious disconnect with life in the universe, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. so that's what I try to say to people. Um, if, if you have a fixed point of view and you don't at least once a year go back and fully deeply self-analyze whether that is still you, then holding on to points of view actually become some filters to keep you from seeing what is going on. So the people who end up the victims or think they are victims are people who held on to points of view and never checked it. Like, I've always been a "Mm," fan or I've always voted this party. Uh, you know, just shows me somebody who isn't thinking, they're just habitual. Yeah. And we need habits for survival, but if your thinking becomes completely habituated, of course you're going to be scared of God change because it attacks your self-identity. Yeah. Well, that's what uh, Make America Great Again was all about. I, The way I see it is that, you know... That, that was the point about Make America Great's okay. It's the, it's the again. Right. You yeah. know? Take all the angry white people who don't have college degrees, who've been left behind by the global elite, and cater to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an underreported. It was an underreported story that for about a month before Trump announced, he had two or three people who did nothing in a vacant apartment in Trump Tower except listen to far right wing talk radio. Mm-hmm. So he understood what the unhappy and the angry wanted to hear right and he gave it to him i mean it's pretty brilliant i mean oh what do the people want let me listen and then i'll tell them i'm going to give it to them Mm -hmm. right yeah Uh, that includes things like conspiracy theories and and uh some well so be it i mean right i mean but the problem is there's always been conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. i mean you know i mean there you know the schopenhauer quote the earth was flat until it wasn't the sun revolved around the, moon, the earth until it didn't. Mm-hmm. Climate change wasn't real until it is, right? So you know, anybody, can, anybody can believe whatever they want. Just don't put your beliefs on me. Right. Oh, well said. So um, if I may pivot a little bit now into sure. um, democracy, the U.S. particularly. Sure. Is, is democracy broken in the U.S.? And, and if so, uh, um, what would be the reasons? Uh, I mean, there's probably a number I mean, of them. Only, it's the, a rhetorical question. Of course no. it's broken. By any metric, tell me where it isn't broken, right? I mean, so so um, there is a polarization we know about. There's a partisanship we know about. You can see it today. In the biggest national crisis of my lifetime, one political party, the party of, the, of President Trump, is making this a partisan thing, red states and blue states. No, we're the United States of America, and we're at high risk. Shame on you for making politics. So one, it's political, it's, it, it, is, it is divided, and, you know, where do you start? You start with the fact that uh, there's gerrymandering. You start with the fact that uh, it's, technically outdated the institutions of government. You, you add on to the fact that um, there is a codependent duopoly in place in the United States, a two-party system. We're the longest continuous democracy in the world, and we are the only democracy in the world with two parties. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to the alliance party's benefit, it's trying to be a third party. The real problem, you know, all the conversations I've had with Jim Rex a decade ago, was it's so difficult to break through the duopoly. Mm-hmm. And, and 
you know, there should have been, there should be a third party because then it's not us against them. The third party will probably be, that would be the smallest, but nothing gets passed without them. So there's always negotiation. I think I said to you in an early conversation, if you do the research, the only, the only, the, all the great women leaders of democracies have come from a multi-party system, whether it's Golda Meir, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Indira Gandhi, um, Angela, Angela Merkel, um, Lucinda in New Zealand. So, I mean, they're all multi-party systems. I don't know, you know, so, you know, that duopoly of control means that there isn't any opening up for change. Right. So that, so that, and, and the other thing that's really broken and this really angers me is the low voter turnout, right? No. So I, I put the low voter turnout. I mean, with, you know, I talk about legacy thinking all the time. We're, we're one of the only democracies in the world that votes on a Tuesday. Why do we vote on a Tuesday? Because in the 1800s, Wednesday was market day in, in the counties. And so um, you had to go to market day on Wednesday. So Tuesday was the day they went to vote, right? Mm. And, and, you know, who has market day now? And the point is you have to vote where you live. That's where your precinct is. But you got to go to work on a Tuesday. Right. So, you know, it, it is in the self-interest of the duopoly to keep it on the Tuesday because voter turnout would increase if it was a weekend, right? Right. So right. Uh, that's one of the good things about, you know, um, absentee ballots and mail-in votes. It, it takes care of that. But the other, the other issue is the low voter turnout. And I've, I've, my personal soapbox um, for 20 years has been, you know, if you think of the founding fathers, they believed in an educated elect, electorate. And in the early 1800s, the average level of education in the United States was the fourth grade. So that's why they set up the public school system in the United States to educate people so they'd be educated citizenry. So my soapbox has always has been for 20 years um, for you know any family that has all of their people over the age of 18 vote in an election gets free Wi-Fi. Hmm. until the next year because you can't really be educated in this world today without being online right and you know that would one increase turnout and two educate everybody more and also be somewhat egalitarian so you know of course it's broken it's, it, it's broken because it's a duopoly it's broken because the duopoly is led to partisanship and 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 us versus them it's broken because people it, it's not as participatory as it should be and you know needs to be fixed so you know you know no. all support to you know jim rex who's a friend and the alliance party i think they're going to have a struggle yeah and it's going to be mean, a struggle yeah. yeah yeah so um yeah we had a we yeah, had a broken we had a conversation with um, Ralph Nader uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, actually, a couple months ago now. Seems like a few weeks ago. But anyways, he uh, he talked about uh, compelling people to vote. I believe they, he cited, uh, I think it was Australia, where um, if you are yeah, 18... Yeah, you get fined if you don't. Yeah, you, uh, you're automatically registered, and um, you are now compelled, just like jury duty, that you must vote. Um, right. And yeah. they've got like a 96, 97 percent turnout rate, which is twice ours. Yeah. But also there, there's a sense that, um, you know, and, and we've talked about this in prior shows, too. And we've had um, uh, people from Fair Vote online here that, on the podcast as well. We've talked about the voting process itself. Um, it is a plurality system. You vote for just one person and uh, there, <clears throat> there is no... Um, there, there is no sense that you could um, cast your vote for take a chance on a third party, but if they don't make it, you know, you don't want to throw your vote away, right? So in, in something like ranked choice voting or perhaps approval voting or something like that, where you can actually cast your vote for several people, a primary and a secondary and a tertiary and so on, so that you can really um, 
open up the field a bit more and have wider choices and voices. Is that, uh, does that look like part of the solution to you as well? Yeah, some change of voting. I, I believe that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, the co- I'm a co-founder and the managing director of the Sarasota Institute, a 21st century think tank. Mm-hmm. And um, um, we put out a position paper. You can, you can go to sarasotainstitute.global and download the white paper. And one of the things we talked about in terms of changing uh, democracy in the United States was very simply um, that uh, after the Democrat-Republican, there should be none of the above. Ah, yeah. And the reason there should be none of the above is I don't think I, there's anybody I know who hasn't said, oh, the lesser of two evils is who I'm voting for. Exactly. Well, yeah. that's not a good way to get the best leadership, right? Right. I mean, occasionally we get lucky. But the point is that is that, you know, elections are job interviews. I want you to give me your vote so that I can represent you in, you know, the state capitol or Washington, D.C. And as I've said many times in speeches after we put out the white paper is if you're running a company and you have a job opening and you have and you interview two candidates and neither of them you like, would you hire one of them? No, you'd say, bring me more candidates. Right. So what none of the above is, is none of the above wins. That means the two parties have to go back and find somebody that will win. And, you know, um, the election, the national election is the first um, Tuesday in November. And yet the Congress isn't sworn in until the first week in January. And the president isn't sworn until the third week in January. Right. So you got how many? You've got. Excuse me for yawning. You've got um, ten to twelve weeks, right? Right. Of uh, no, you got you got ten weeks, and and so it's not going to slow it down. You just got to move it. So whoever puts up the candidate, that and and what that does is it it puts the power in the electorate. Number one, mm-hmm. and number two, it forces the two parties to listen to the electorate rather than throwing somebody down their throat. Right. And you know, when it comes to the primaries, well, we have the primary system. Problem with the primary system is is kind of what we said about uh, lack of turnout. Right. You know, it, it, it's fairly clear that if you're that the the activist of each party is what who controls the primaries. Right. So you may get a progressive because that's who won the Democrat in a right wing ultra right conservative because that's who's active in the Republican and you come to the general and neither of them are liked by the majority of the people in the middle. Yeah. So the majority of the people should have the right to say, I mean, they should say, well, they should have voted in the primary, but you know, primary turnout is always much lower than general election turnout. Yeah. So that's why. Well, there's a couple of things, too, with primaries. Um, um, one, one is in the 2016 election, I was, I was quite surprised, but not overly surprised, the fact that uh, after the primaries, uh, there was, you know, there usually is this traditional race to the middle, they call it, where uh, right. candidates will try to pick up everybody that's, you know, not on either one of the wings, but that didn't happen in 2016. They pretty much stayed out on the edges. And so it was just a, a wide chasm in between the two candidates that um, was never really addressed by either one. And neither one felt the need to address it either, which was Are interesting. You're talking about Clinton, Trump? Clinton and Trump. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't understand why that, I mean, um, uh, Clinton was mainstream elite uh, moderate, mm-hmm. and Trump was um, populist. Yeah. And I've always said that the 2016 election was a wealth inequality election. The two, the two people that came out of 2016 out of nowhere were Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And Bernie Sanders never gave a speech we didn't use the word revolution. And mm-hmm. Trump's whole messaging was, you know, populist uprising. Mm-hmm. And whenever you have the level of wealth inequality that existed in 2016, it's even more now, 
in history, you have revolution or populist uprising. So the reason Clinton got her clock clean, I mean, even though she went, I mean, she ran a horrible campaign. She's probably a, a better, she'd be a better president than which campaigner. Mm-hmm. But um, she was the status quo. Yeah. And, you know, in a change election, status quo loses. So I, I kind of pushed back that it wasn't far left and far right. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think Bernie Sanders could have beaten Trump. Yeah. But well, that would have th- been far left and far right. Th- that's true. And I, the, I, reason, uh, the reason Clinton lost was she was, you know, of the last 20 years. Yeah. And if you're angry about what's going on in the United States, you're not going to support somebody who's been around for 20 years. You want a new pace. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. She wasn't she wasn't far left. I know uh, Trump had, had raced off to the right. Um, but I always she felt was, she that— She wasn't anywhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, she was the worst—she was the worst presidential candidate on the Democratic side since Michael Dukakis. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, I've always said that, and now it's coming apparent, like with what happened with Biden, right? It's like, well, he's really killing Bernie in places that Bernie used to win. Now they're finally saying— because it was kind of sacrilegious in mainstream media saying, well, Hillary Clinton really wasn't a very good candidate. Hmm. And that's now obvious, right? Yeah. Hillary Clinton loses to Bernie in Michigan and Biden cleans his clock. There's only, you know, there's several conclusions you draw from that, but one of them is Clinton was a bad campaigner. Mm-hmm. Had ran a bad campaign. Yeah. Was, a, was a flawed candidate, right? So, you know, that... that 2016 is the prime example of none of the above. Hmm. That would have been, that been good. I think that I think none of the above would have won. In fact, I remember talking about that with my friends at that time as well. That uh, none of right. the above would have won, and probably would have, um, yeah, forced another uh, another uh, round of elections then. Right. So um, let's get to more uh, contemporary issues here. We are in the midst of a pandemic at this point, uh, this COVID-19. And uh, when you and I talked a couple of weeks ago, um, you mentioned something about, uh, I thought it was a very interesting phrase you made there, because I said, you know, how are we going to get back to normal? Do we bounce back? And you said, no, we'll bounce forward. And that really got me thinking. Um, could you explore that topic a little bit more? How do we how do we change? How does COVID-19 change us? How do we bounce forward? Or should we bounce forward? Well, you know, the phrase was, you know, people say, when's the economy going to bounce back? And I say, the economy is only going to bounce forward. In the two weeks since we've spoken, uh, I put out a column on Monday and expanded on it yesterday in my blog, on evolutionship and davidhold.com. And the title is the, the First Depression of the 21st Century. So we're in a depression now. Mm-hmm. Any any economic number you look at, unemployment, GDP contraction, can has only relativity to the 1930s, right? So when you're in a depression, everything changes because whatever existed didn't isn't isn't working now. Mm-hmm. And so the point is is that is that um, so how is the United States of America, how's the economy going to bounce forward? Because it's not going to be reconstituted. It has to be reconstituted. It's never going to come back. And the phrase I hate is the new normal, right? Mm-hmm. Because there is no such thing as normal. Tell me what normal is anywhere. And it's an agreed upon social contract that it's normal for people to work Monday through Friday, nine to five, and drive in their car and live in the suburbs. But, but but there is no normal, right? Just like there is no fix. Everything is in a constant state of change. So how can you have a new something that doesn't exist, right? So I think that the economy is going to bounce forward only once it's gotten rid of all the legacy thinking and business structures of the past. Basically, what you're seeing is the collapse of the business model pretty much from the 20th century. Mm-hmm. You know, what are, the, what are the stocks that are doing well? The connectivity stocks, the Googles, the Apples, the Facebooks, the Amazons. What are the stocks and companies that are doing bad? Airlines, hotels, cars, right? So this is going to flesh out old business models that were on life support, but we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. Um, so I think, I think COVID-19, well, also it, you know, it's the greatest, as I just said, it's the biggest crisis in, in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, at least. And there's a total lack of leadership. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know, there's never been a president who in so, such a short period of time oversaw so fast a collapse or so many deaths. <laughs> yeah. know, and it could have been prevented or at least contained, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so, so COVID, but see what COVID's doing is, I think you mentioned before we got on the phone, it's kind of like, you know, I, I like working from home now, right? So you spend six, you spend two months doing stuff that you've never done before. You're going to grow to like it. Oh, now I, I like working from home, right? So just that, you know, so one of the consequences, for example, is going to be the collapse of of commercial real estate and office leasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if, if say 90 million people work from home over the last two months, maybe 80 million of them it's first time. Now they've developed a habit. Now they're comfortable with it. And the shareholders, the owner of the company go, wait a minute, I'm spending how much rent for 50,000 square feet of space in downtown, whatever. Right. Uh, I'll take that down to 10,000 or 20,000, and I'll have people come in two days a week. So all yeah. the salespeople come in at the same time. All HR comes in at the same day. So people are working at home three days of the week and going to the office two days a week, right? So that's going to change. I think all the industries that will change, but it'll start with office. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so every, and, and the other thing is, I think, you know, consumerism is going to collapse. So the, the, the the economy is going to bounce forward in new ways. And then you tie it together with, you know, the book I was saying, the age of climate, the age of climate change. Uh, you know, I'm doing a webinar tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon about how COVID-19 has changed climate change. I mean, we've all seen the pictures, how once humans stay inside, the air gets clear, the, the water gets clear, uh, animals are free to roam, plants grow faster, uh, you know, Sea turtles are nesting and giving, laying more eggs than ever before. So you know we're the most invasive species on the planet. Always right. have been. So what COVID nineteen is doing is it's really showing us that however we bounce forward is going to be in a completely reconstituted reality from January first this year. Hmm. That's really interesting because I can I can see a lot of industries, as you mentioned, uh, particularly with with transportation. You mentioned airlines and so on, but I but, you know, the um, was it American Petroleum actually has negative value at this time or, or? Yeah, no, it's great that the yeah. the collapse of oil has gone down so much, right? It, it, yeah. it's great. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's going to. Uh, uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, the, the government should bail out the petroleum industry, but there's a lot of talk against it as well. Like, you know, maybe we you don't need this. You can't bail it out. It's not yeah. bailoutable. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I think we're, we're coming up on the end of our time here. Um, is there anything else you'd like to mention uh, that uh, before we draw to a close here? No, I just, I just, you know, I, I want to put in a plug for, for um, my book, uh, The 2020s, and, and, and it's a, you know, it's not up on Amazon yet. It'll be up by the end of the year. But, um, you know, the website is the2020sdecade.com, and you can sign in up for the book and get an email once it's available for sale. So, so um, I, I, I really want everybody, you know, whether it's, people working in the Alliance Party, whatever, to know that the 2020s are going to be completely disruptive. So that means there's great opportunity. You know, for example, for the Alliance Party, if capitalism, is, if democracy is broken and everything's changing and it is, it is the political institutions that are causing death and economic collapse, time for a change. Yeah. So uh, I, I tell everybody, don't get scared about the change be optimistic in a way or opportunistic i should say as to how you might feel better about yourself make more money feel happier by 
um, understanding and accepting that you can't go back to the way things were. So who are you going to be? You know, those not busy being born are busy dying, as Dylan said. And, you know, as the hippies always used to say, is today is the first day of the rest of your life. Don't mourn yesterday. Get excited about tomorrow. That's good. Yeah, wasn't there a, 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 one of the opening quotes in one of your books said something, um, oh my gosh, I forgot how that went. So we should try to we be should the parents. We should try to be the parents of our future rather than the offspring of our past. That's it. Yeah. Wonderful. Good words. Very good. And the, the website, uh, the 2020 decade.com, that says the 2020. It's, it's the 2020. So it's the and then 2020s with an S okay. and then decade. Dot com. So the 2020decade.com. Perfect. And you go there and there's a place to put in your email address, sign up for pre-publication notice. And I urge everybody to do it because it's a, it's a fast read, right around 100 pages. Um, I'm going to price it inexpensively. So, you know, it, it, you know, I regard it as an introductory guide book to the, to the new decade. Okay. Good. So thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you. Uh, we've been talking with David Houle, a futurist, thinker, keynote speaker with deep experience as a business advisor, entertainment industry pioneer, and prolific author. You can tune into David's website at davidhoole.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-H-O-U-L-E.com. David, uh, thank you for dropping by this evening and spending some time with us. Happy to drop by. I'm happy to come back anytime and Good luck to you and to all the listeners that say good luck, you know, be strong, be positive, and look for the opportunities that are ahead. And now a few words on this episode from the Alliance Party's national chair, Jim Rex. Well, Dan, uh, it's a real pleasure to be on again this evening. Uh, the, uh, the speaker tonight, uh, David Houle, and I go back quite a ways. Uh, when I was in office as the uh, Secretary of Education in South Carolina, in our state, it's called the State Superintendent of Education, um, and it's an elected office. And uh, during that, my tenure was 2007 to 2011, I um, often referred to teachers as future makers. And so at one of our um, annual State Teacher of the Year banquets, I had asked uh, David Houle, who I had read some of his work, uh, if he would be willing to come to South Carolina as our featured speaker. And so he came and did a phenomenal job talking about the importance of teaching and teachers and, and the importance of um, having a futuristic perspective on education. And um, so from that sprang a friendship. And after I left office in uh, 2001, a few years later, um, was meeting with some thought partners uh, from around my state, Republicans, Democrats, independents, who were as frustrated as I was at that time with the two-party system. And I invited uh, David to, to come down to South Carolina and to uh, sit at my dining room table for a day and a half and, and think about what could be done. And out of that discussion came the idea of the American Party, which uh, was given ballot access in South Carolina in 2014 and was a founding predecessor of the Alliance Party. And, uh, you know, even back then, the idea was not just to create a new political party, but more importantly, to create a new approach to politics. And that, of course, is exactly what we're doing still with the Alliance Party, but now on a national basis. And um, so much of it has to do with what David Houle and you talked about this evening, and that is to have a perspective that's focused on the future. And the, we've all heard, I think, the saying that, you know, those who do not study and learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. And those who don't understand that they need to be looking forward, not backward, and our institutions need to do that, and certainly our leaders, and especially our political leaders, need to be... Um, oriented toward the future, not the past, uh, is one of the reasons we think that the alliance is so important. And we've done a lot, of course, to, to anticipate what the new politician, the new public servant 
will look like, needs to look like for the future. And one of the reasons we are the first political party in history to require and, and monitor and enforce term limits is because we know, and I think your listeners know, you don't have to read polls to know that. Just just talk to your friends and family and colleagues. People are sick and tired of career politicians who get in office and stay there for decades and don't get anything done. So term limits um, is is an idea whose time has come. And I don't think there's anything that's going to stop that. Uh, we want to help make it happen more quickly. Same thing with transparency. We're the first political party in history to require that uh, uh, tax returns are made available publicly by our candidates from the three most current years. Um, if we're going to trust these people with making decisions about our future, they need to trust us with that level of transparency. And so, again, first party political party in the history of the nation to require that level of transparency. So, uh, you know, it was a, it was great to listen to that that conversation and that interview and to hear again the uh, tremendous energy that David brings to his craft uh, as a futurist. And in addition to energy, he has this drive to contribute, to help make things better and to not let us continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. It's frustrating for all of us to watch that, but I think especially so for a futurist. So um, the Alliance Party is um, partly, uh, you know, what it is because of the input from people like um, David Houle and others. Um, and we, we now exist so that uh, we can begin to help our nation envision approaches that haven't been used up until now to um, deal with the persistent problems that we all face and have faced and will continue to face problems like injustice, inequality, sickness, ignorance, environmental stewardship. Um, these are growing problems that we need to be futuristic and proactive and creative in reimagining what, uh, what the solutions can be and how to make them happen. So thank you for the interview with David this evening. I enjoyed it, and I hope the listeners understand the relationship between what David Houle is talking about this evening and what the Alliance Party is trying to accomplish for America. Thank you, Jim, for that wrap-up. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any new episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast now has a Twitter page at Alliance on Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark podcast, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.